is Transitional Matters with Chris Marshall. With Chris Marshall. We've gathered the best thinkers from around the world to talk about the most important social, environmental, financial, technological, and geopolitical transitions that affect your life. Transitional Matters is all about bringing the greatest thinkers directly to your ears. The most important trends, megatrends, and transitions that are going on around us. Now zip up and put your headphones on. Broadcasting direct from the UK, here's your host, Chris Marshall. Well, welcome to episode seven of Transitional Matters, where we try and take a, a large step back from the short-term noise of the world and really look at the big picture, the trends, the mega trends, and the transitions going on around us. So today, Friday the 18th of March 2022, I'm pleased to say I am joined by Stefan Hofferitcher, Head of Global Economics and Strategy at Alliance Global Investors, based in Frankfurt. Think as well, you're an advisor to the European Securities and Markets Authority and also teach classes at business schools as well. Now, our conversation today is going to cover an awful lot of areas. We're going to cover everything from debt cycles, monetary policy, perhaps even crypto assets, green financing, inflation, and and probably everything in between. But before we dive into that, Stefan, could I get you just to very briefly outline your story and a bit about your role as Global Head of Economics at Allianz Global Investors, because I think that really helps to set the scene. Thanks, uh, Chris, and thanks everyone for dialing in. The role that we have here as uh, economists and strategists at Alliance Global Investors is to provide asset allocation ideas to our internal clients, so the fund managers, but of course also to our external clients, be it institutional or retail. All that based on fundamental analysis of financial markets. And of course, that also implies that we have to make a deep dive into global economic developments. Now, in terms of investment horizon, it really matters on the client and the needs of of the respective clients. It could be shorter term tactical allocation, but for some of our clients, internal and external ones, we'd also have to take a long-term perspective many years or even longer to set the frame and to identify potential opportunities and risks in markets. So it's quite a a heterogeneous group of people that we are catering. No, very good. So let's start, if you don't mind, just by really taking a look at some of the things going on today around us. For me, it's extraordinarily important to understand what's going on today. I believe that you need to look back through history to understand what led us to where we are. So right now, from what I see, we stand at a very pivotal point in time from a whole load of areas. We could take monetary policy, we could take fiscal policy, we could take geopolitics, which is clearly everywhere in the news right now. From your point of view, what are the big significant changes that you've seen in the past couple of decades that have kind of really led to where we are now? What are some of those big things that you think have really kind of transitioned the world? Sure. And first, uh, I fully subscribe to your view that in order to understand the future, you have to understand the past first. Now, a couple of developments I think are are really worth highlighting, and we may see some major changes in one way or the other here. As an economist who was also for some time also trained at at the Deutsche Bundesbank, it's not surprising to point also at the development of monetary policy over a longer term period and where it has led us today. So that's certainly one important development to be precise here. 
what I observe over the last now 35 years is, uh, well, actually since Greenspan, a monetary policy, which I would characterize as asymmetric, which is easy in times of slowdown, in times of economic risks, but not tight enough and responsive enough in times of booms. Now, that can be explained by central banks' extreme focus on goods price inflation. We could also discuss whether they are correctly measured, but not putting enough emphasis on asset price dynamics. Now, and this kind of policy has gone into another level, notably since COVID when actually central banks together with the governments were really fighting a war against the virus as it was called by several uh, decision makers. So that's a major development over the last couple of years. Related to that, I think this kind of policy has also been conducive to quite some risk-taking of investors. It has propelled up valuations in many, many asset classes. And it's not a big surprise that as a consequence of these two developments that we have also seen repeated occurrence of financial crisis. Now, it's not always the big one that we had 15 years ago, but objectively measured data on that provided also by, by academic research, the number, the depth and the breadth of financial crisis since the 1980s, you may probably also say since the end of Bretton Woods has clearly increased. So that uh, has become a part of our new normal, if you want, in our, fiat, in our fiat money world. Now, that's so far the monetary aspect. In the real economy world, we have also seen many, many changes, and which was basically starting in the late 1970s with the opening up of China and then additional booster in 1989, 1990 with 91, the, the collapse of communism, a major globalization wave that has then reaped the benefit of this globalization wave, the peace dividend. And this trend as it stands has clearly lost pace since the financial crisis, and it's not getting better with what's happening in Ukraine these days. And the third development that is happening in the real world is that we have also experienced a major boom in technological innovation, which, depending on how you want to, to measure it precisely, probably it started in 71 with the first uh, development of the, of the first microchip. It certainly then experienced a major leap forward in the 1990s with the, the internet, the mobile phones, and then we are getting another, entering another phase here, everything that's related to artificial intelligence. Now, I think all three developments are to some extent interrelated and have a major impact on the world economy, but we are also seeing some frictions here and there popping up, notably with respect to globalization. We are, as of today, seeing some signs of this trend coming to an end. Uh, innovation cycle is probably just, well, is in full swing. Let's see if this innovation will also lead to productivity. Let's not forget innovation is not the same as productivity from an economic perspective. And with coming back to the first point of monetary policy, let's see where this will end. I think they were already seeing some signs of, of negative developments with, uh, with inflation picking up. I'm so glad that you just said that these are all interconnected because absolutely, I, you know, I think that's critical to understand. I think actually too often in our modern society, we get hyper specialists who are very, very siloed in their thinking and only look at one particular aspect and forget to broaden that vision. So we'll try and find time to touch on all of those bits. Let's just start with that monetary policy 
part, then perhaps if we then progress that into some of the things we see happening in debt cycles, super debt cycles. But let's start with that monetary policy bit, because again, I think this is something that the wider audience probably don't fully understand. And I want to actually take this back to 1951, when we have basically the central bank or the US Fed becomes completely independent. I say completely independent, so-called independent, shall we say. But they were for a period of time. Because then we kind of go through, this is how I see it. And please, you know, jump in if you see this differently, Stefan. I see it that we went through kind of three very big regimes and we've just started the third. So the first was really, as, as I think you alluded to, so Volcker basically started manipulating interest rates in this kind of this counter cyclical way to stimulate the economy when it went down. And then kind of we got to 2008, the great financial crisis and interest rates weren't a big enough or strong enough tool. So they decided, okay, well, we'll tag on quantitative easing. And then we got to COVID and rate policy plus QE still wasn't enough. So they entered kind of what I'm going to call QE for the people. So to me, those are the kind of the three big parts. I, I don't know what your take is yeah, on that. Yeah, but, well, I differentiate even more. When you start with 1951, of course, then um, it, it falls in, in the period uh, of the Bretton Woods system. So we could say 44 to de facto 71, That because that's when 15th of August 71, when, when we had the Nixon shock and basically uh, Bretton Woods ended de facto, even not the URI. Then we had the first part of our fiat money system, which I think ended with Volcker after his term. Is it worth just outlining exactly what we mean by kind of a fiat currency? Because again, I, I think some people out there probably won't understand that term. Fiat money means, well, coming from from the Latin word fiat, which means it should be Basically, it should be money. I hope I translated it correctly in English. Just by by central banks, basically, the money just exists because of um, the, the credibility of a central bank. If you want the intrinsic value of the paper that you hold or the deposit on your bank account, the physical value is zero. It's not linked to any any commodity. The value simply relies in the credibility of the central bank that provides the monetary backdrop to finance the economy. It's it's trust in the this money that has been created by central banks. As you said at the beginning, we may discuss monetary systems later on more detail and probably if we have time to talk about digital currencies, which I put in quote. So we have the fiat money system, which de facto started in 71 up until that characterized initially by period of high inflation, which an inflation was came to an end under Volcker. And then from 87 onwards to 2008, um, that's the, what I would call that period of, the, of growth and low, low volatility, but also characterized by what I would call asymmetric monetary policy. And it started with Greenspan, who actually a few weeks in his, in his term already implemented or provided the first put by a central bank to equity market investors. This policy went... It's not, you can, can't only blame the central bankers, but it has contributed, has been conducive to blowing off the asset and credit bubble, the great financial crisis. And then central banks just had to go into, well, to overdrive by, by using unconventional monetary policy instruments. And just as they were about to, to exit them, we've seen the first steps um, in that direction by notably in the US. We were hit by COVID and it started de facto all over again, just more of, of what we had before. 
and in collaboration then with fiscal policy because the period 2007, that's when uh, the crisis uh, GFC officially started, but seven to nine, if you want, that's also peak to 2020 was period of notably a very expansionary monetary policy, but notably in Europe period of um, not really characterized by rather by fiscal austerity. And that since 2020, we had exactly the opposite. But I would rather say there are three that's semantics, actually, three sub chapters <laughs> since 1987. And before that, we had the f- we had the high inflation and the Volcker environment. I think that's fascinating. The other thing that I think you just touched on just before was this link between this monetary policy regime, which whether, as you say, whether we argue on the semantics of how many and what phases and what dates, but we've seen a continuation of that theme throughout the last few decades. And you also mentioned kind of the risk appetite within asset markets, because I think this is something else really quite key. And for me, I actually believe that the central bankers have a poor understanding of money, which is a a very big statement to make because that is their job. And what I mean by that is they misunderstand the signal that the interest rate gives to the real economy. If you don't have a central banker manipulating the interest rate, i.e. they're not manipulating the price of money, then that gives a signal to the business on the ground or on the street to go, okay, well, interest rates naturally come down when there's increase in savings, which to a business means, well, we might as well invest for the long term because in the future, there is going to be consumer demand, i.e. that pent-up demand is going to come out. Whether the interest rate or the price of money, if you like, is manipulated, that relationship doesn't necessarily happen the company still gets the signal that long-term capital projects are a good idea because the interest rates pulled back, but the consumer themselves doesn't necessarily have an increased spending power because there isn't savings on the other side. It's a created balance sheet exercise. And so you kind of get this dislocation. So every time there's a slowdown in demand, the central banks go, okay, we'll, we'll push down the cost of money again, i.e. we'll push down the interest rate. And hopefully... On the other side, consumers start borrowing more. And I think you get this mismatch in the kind of the cost of money and and business activity. But then that also shows up, I think, in people having a a, a misunderstanding, I'm going to say, of the risks they're taking in the asset market. You agree uh, with, with with all, or with at least with most of what you're saying, and actually that's um, that's a kind of Austrian economic thinking that you're just laid out. And definitely, there are signs that just to to back up the statement that you made is that to some extent central bankers have not fully taken that into account. The Jackson Hole consensus is actually all about that. And and I, I was referring to that at the, at the beginning, the conviction of central banks, and I think to a large extent up until today, is that as long as you have a low and stable inflationary environment, inflation referring to goods price inflation, you're providing the backdrop for benign economic developments. But And hence, if there is an overshooting in asset prices, it's the fault of the private sector. And we central bankers, that's their thinking, uh, don't have a full understanding of, um, of asset mispricing, and we will only take care of it once an accident has happened. But I fully share your view that part of the reason why we have this risk taking, why we have, uh, why we have seen over the last decades a constant, albeit in cycle, but a, a trend expansion in the trend of leverage, is because monetary policy, in my opinion, has been too asymmetric, as I said, too easy, 
times well easy and and bold but we have seen bold easing in times of uh, recession but then no normalization on the way up and the consequence has uh, why that i mean central bankers are they have amended but it has been they've defined it very too narrowly by focusing on goods price inflation and just a little anecdote when i just one or two years out of um, out of university a long time ago I came across a book about inflation targeting, which was in the mid-late 1990s, the big innovation in uh, among central bankers, co-authored by Ben Bernanke. A decent economic textbook. What I stumbled about, and that's uh, as, as a junior economist back then, is when looking at how they define inflation, it was, if I recall correctly, half a page, probably one page. But actually, that makes a huge, it's, it's really about how to define inflation that really has an impact on how you design your monetary policy. The way you, def, even if you look at goods price inflation, you have to consider, you may or may not consider part of, of asset prices inflation in there. The US does it by looking at um, homeowners equivalent rent. The ECB doesn't it and doesn't do it and they've only come to this idea last year. And now, um, according to Professor Isabel Schnabel on the ECB Governing Council, the officially reported ECB inflation is roughly half a percentage point lower than it would be if we also took account of the uh, homeowner's equivalent rent appropriately in the Eurozone. But that's just one part. The other thing is not focusing enough on mispricing or excesses in in the asset markets in itself has been one of the reasons why central banks have not implemented tight enough monetary policy in boom times and as if they've not put enough emphasis or not looked at it at all on on asset price dynamics once asset prices went into reverse or once asset prices went up and leverage went up, it was difficult, became ever more difficult for central bankers to normalize because the economy has become ever more reliant on cheap financing. Uh, and hence, they were not, their arms were, well, they, they, they were not free enough, actually, to, to normalize policy in time and appropriately enough because they had to fear that if they do that, the economy, the, the high leverage would become a problem for the economy. And this is not just, an abstract statement that I'm making. If you think back to 2015, actually, the Fed postponed rate hikes two times precisely because they were referring to the harm they might inflict to the economy if they were to hike. Now, the situation has not become easier because we have amassed even more debt, notably over the last two years. And that's the situation so much difficult for central banks today to normalize in an environment of higher goods price inflation that they are still very much focusing on because if they hike by too much, they run the risk of um, creating ever more problems. You've just brought this perfectly to the point I was going to raise of debt cycles, because I know you do an awful lot of work on debt cycles and also super debt cycles, actually. Do you want to just explain concept. Firstly, what is a, a debt cycle? Because, you know, with, these are different. Well, I'm assuming your definition of a debt cycle is going to be different to what we'd call the market cycle, or simply the business cycle. And certainly when we start talking about super debt cycles, could you just outline some of that? Because uh, I, I think this is, again, another fascinating area to talk about. Sure. Well, the debt cycle, well, very often when market participants talk about leverage in an economy, they uh, very much look at debt of a, of a government, because typically and that, that's the counterpart, the debt or the assets that an investor, the bonds that an investor can buy and is concerned about default risk. 
and the credit, but nevertheless, and, and hence, of course, the treasury markets and the bond markets are are um, the biggest asset. Uh, and the, the treasury market is the biggest, the most important asset class in the in the world. But actually, I much focus much more on private sector leverage, private households and companies. Here, I'm referring to a concept that um, was um, developed by the Bank for International Settlement a couple of years ago, right after the financial crisis, where they looked at the importance of dynamics for the uh, solidity or the or uh, of an economic development or on the other side the buildup of financial uh, of risk in the financial system so what they found is that what really is key determinant from a longer term economic perspective is the development of private sector credit growth and house price dynamics no matter how you how you calibrate these numbers, but it's these kind of dynamics. So you can look at the debt, private sector debt to GDP, credit gap uh, relative to trend, the credit gap is one part of it, house price valuations and house price dynamics as another part, and then combine the two numbers, and then you come up with what the BIS calls the financial cycle. It is important because as long as the financial cycle is expanding, in other words, as long as the economy is leveraging up and house prices are rising, that provides a, a very stable backdrop, tailwind for an economy. House prices rising means private sector balance sheets are improving, banks' balance sheets are not at risk, and the economy is growing because well, that's a, houses are a big investment and the biggest of, of private households typically, and they are typically leveraged. So you get a major boom to the economy. And then on the other side, but when once the cycle turns, you have a high risk of a financial crisis in one way or the other. And because then you get an unwinding of a selling or fire selling, the run the risk of fire selling of uh, overpriced houses, and you have a deleveraging in the economy. This is in an extreme way what happened in 2007 to 9 when we entered the financial crisis this is what happened in 1989 early 1990s in japan uh, and you had these kind of events again and again to differentiate from the business cycle you the business cycle is the gdp up and down you can have even a business cycle recession in a positive in an expanding financial cycle a very good ex but these these recessions are typically shallow ones short ones and the best example for that is the business cycle recession in in the US in 2001, following the burst of the tech bubble, the asset prices, the equity market collapsed, but the economy hardly contracted because we are still had a boom in the housing market and a re-leveraging of the economy. But once this, this financial cycle turns, the recessions are typically deep and long, and you have a heightened risk of a financial accident. Yeah, I want to come back to this focus on consumer credit or private debt, whichever way around you want to kind of put that. Because absolutely, and I think, I feel like we're just giving mainstream economists and central bankers a really hard time now. But I've, I've been looking up just while you've been outlining that really great definition of Ben Bernanke put in his book, I think the book was called Essays on the Great Depression. And in there, he basically makes this statement that private debt doesn't really have much effect on the economy because it simply is the transfer of money between private actors in the market. So the phrase he put in the book was, pure redistributions should have no significant macroeconomic effect. And I actually think that the, this private debt side has been so overlooked that all the concentration has been on government debt. 
And this is where you get things like the Maastricht Treaty come in, you know, kind of limiting countries. And we could spend a whole podcast arguing about kind of, has that really helped? You know, you could say that Spain did a really good job of sticking to that, but it wasn't a great result for them. But absolutely, I think the private debt market is completely overlooked. I'm not sure if it's the same Bank of International Settlements paper that that you've been talking about, but I know in there they did some research and they showed they were talking about the boosting effect of private debt and also the longer term slowdown in growth from it. So they, I think what they said was as uh, private debt increases, you get an initial boost to the economy over about 12 months. But then after that, it has a, a slowing effect on the economy. And I think that to tie it all the way back into what we were just talking about with central banks having to always reduce the level of interest rate and actually being in a position where they can't actually tighten ties in exactly with what you're saying about these kind of these debt cycles and the importance of private or consumer debt. Is that fair? Absolutely. The BIS, which I think is an amazing source of research and insights. Sometimes I wish that central bankers would refer more to to the central bank of central bankers. There was one quote that also sticks in my mind from the BIS in one of their papers, which is that not only central banks should not lean against the wind, they are the wind. And that's uh, exactly in a very punchy way saying that this easy monitor policy has been conducive to the buildup of private sector leverage. And that's what really is key for the longer term health of an economy. And then uh, they would certainly, just like the, you and, and me, disagree with the statement from Bernanke that, uh, that you just quoted. I want to come back to this right at the end, actually. I want to finish discussing inflation and perhaps some of the things that we see up ahead and are they inflationary or disinflationary? What kind of have central banks got left to actually fight inflation if they need to, in your view? But I want to transition at this point just to come on to some of the technological innovation because that's also extraordinarily important in all of this. And I think we can probably segue quite nicely from monetary policy if we branch our conversation into perhaps what I'm going to call the Bretton Woods 3, whatever view that takes. There's been some recent articles we were discussing this just before we started recording the show that Credit Suisse, one of their analysts, had something out. We seem to be moving towards the end of the current monetary order. And I mean that from the point of view, you can see this from, well, let's take Russia, Ukraine, the Russian sanctions, essentially cutting Russia off from its own central bank reserves. That would certainly be, you know, one kind of flag that I'd I'd put in there. But also the de-dollarization of things. You've seen it in Europe, actually, Europe wanting to buy commodities in euros rather than dollars. So let's concentrate on that area for a second. And we can bring cryptos into this and, you know, potentially central bank, digital currency, the floor is yours. It's easy to make this call that we are coming to the end of our monetary system because of all the discussions that we just had. But there's always a way around it and things can will last much longer than uh, one might think in the first place. And I think it will. the current system will not end, but it has some consequences, of course, how things Develop. So one of the consequences that we are currently seeing is a rise in goods price inflation because of also because of some underlying 
changes in the real economy that are currently taking place. I think we'll discuss about inflation going forward a bit longer, but just a few aspects here. The, the globalization has uh, is no longer happening as it did until the financial crisis. Demographics are a major issue. The greening of the economy is a major issue, plus the overdrive of monetary stimulus. So that's, hence we are seeing inflation going up structurally, I think, again. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we are seeing the end of our financial system. For sure, we are also seeing new innovations in money, cryptos, be it the official ones that are just being, the central bankers are working on as a response to the private sector ones. But again, that's innovation that has always taken place. Money has never been the same over the last hundreds or thousands of years. So it's it's a monetary innovation rather than necessarily the nail in the coffin of our monetary system. Are we seeing the end of the dollar regime? Well, if you take a very long-term perspective, of course, you could always draw parallels that we have, we have seen changes in the currencies that are were dominating the world economy over the last hundreds, thousands of years. And these developments sometimes take place very slowly, but sometimes there are also there's a a major political event that makes a, a major that causes a major change here. And if you want the major, the natural candidate, candidate, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but the natural candidate, if you want this, if it's not the dollar, you could say it, it's potentially the RMB because it's a big economy, a lot of innovative power and a lot of muscles and a state with a lot of muscles, i.e. military power. But as of today, it's still a country that is not, from an economic perspective, really, or from a financial perspective, really dominating the world. They don't have an open capital account, which makes it very difficult to use the RMB. So let's see how things develop. But in any case, I think it's a very, very long-term process. And still, the US accounts for 60% or so of world currency reserves of, of transactions. I think any change would be the end of its dominance is, is, is a development that is unlikely to happen near term. Yeah, no, absolutely. I would, yeah, completely agree with that assessment. And actually, I think this is, for me, this is a key to understanding change in the world in a broader sense, actually. We can look at this through technological innovations, actually, that just because something erupts, it shows up on the scene. It doesn't mean that it's an instant change. And actually, I would say that change is far slower than people think it is. I think that the common view on the street is that change is extraordinarily rapid because they're potentially not aware of what's going on until it's thrust upon them. But from where I sit, I see that change actually takes decades to play out. So we could say that with, let's take a technological innovation, recent one, semiconductor. As you said, I think that was like 1970, 1971, thereabouts, coming out of Bell Labs. Yes, there were some early technological innovations which adopted those and used those. But really, the power of that information technology revolution is only happening now. And we're seeing that 40 years on. So the change has been very slow. And I think the same is true because we're really, I mean, again, you touched on this, but we're talking about almost a changing global order. That's certainly if you follow the the kind of dominant currency, then it follows that. You You could go from the Spanish to the Dutch to the British pound to the US dollar. And then the conversation we're having is where next? But yeah, they take decades to play out, don't they? And so I want to bring this back, as I said, to technological innovation, because I think the revolutions that we see going on there, or 
I think what you probably refer to as revolutions under kind of the Klaus Schwab model, I would more subscribe to the, the waves. So I think you'd be saying we're entering like the fourth technological revolution right now. The, the fifth or the sixth, but it's, yeah. it's, it's a major, it's say, a major. Semantics yeah, again, yeah. I, I would say we're approaching the sixth wave. And I think that difference only comes from where you split revolutions. Like the first industrial revolution, according to Klaus Schwab anyway, would incorporate both the steam engine and locomotives, whereas I would separate those two things out. But in general, we're, t- we're talking about exactly the same things. And I think the other thing which is telling here, coming back to this idea that change takes a long time, is you get two different speeds of change that I would say change is not constant. And I think this is something else that the world misses, is that there's an assumption that technology just constantly just comes out at a steady pace and it progresses in a nice linear fashion and everything's going to kind of be okay. But actually, when you start looking at these revolutions or waves, whichever school you kind of subscribe to, you see there are these periods where innovation develops a whole new paradigm. Innovation is non-linear, yeah, yeah. That's counter to our experience of life because most of our Mm -hmm. experience of life is linear. If you miss the go from the iPhone like 11 to 12, you you could miss out a few models and you're still fine. You can still phone your friends and WhatsApp them or whatever apps you use. But when you get to a technological revolution or new paradigm of technology, the whole system shifts rapidly. Let's outline some of the technological revolutions because potentially people aren't too familiar with that. Okay. Now, again, it's not, as as you say, there is no precise definition when how to count, but one of the major ones was 250 years ago or so with the steam engine. And then you had the followed by the steel making, modern steel making and the locomotives. So you couldn't lump them together or separate them. So that was around, well, the 1780, so almost 250 years ago. The, the other one starting um, in 1820 and 1830, roughly, but up until the mid of the 19th century, no matter whether you count them as one or as two. Then you have had another major industrial revolution starting, well, basically in the, in the last quarter of the 19th century with electricity being the key innovation, but followed by several others in communication telephones. And then at the beginning of the 19th of the 20th century, the automobile industry, the mass production of automobiles, the airplanes, later on radio and and the chemical industry. And then again, depending on how you want to define it, it basically started in the the 1950s, 60s with the beginning of the computer, of computers being more widely rolled out, nuclear energy, and then said before the 71 the the invention of the microchip that has led to digital innovation uh, with the pcs first uh, the mobile phones the internet and then ultimately probably in the starting after the financial crisis so a good 10 years ago everything that is related to artificial intelligence the infrastructure and the application of it you could also add to that new green technology that that's related to that biotechnology etc so that's these are the major innovation waves or cycles and beyond than just the technological innovation it has also led to different ways of production and it's uh, related has had some implications also on on how the world has organized itself around these innovations so 
it's, it's not only that a car was produced, but there was also a mass production process that at one point in time changed the world. Production was, was organized or the steel making also enabled the role for faster and broader rollout of, uh, of railways, which also had an, an important impact on where you have, on where you locate your protection facilities and etc. And now with the innovation that we're seeing in artificial intelligence, it may also imply that probably are no longer going around the world to produce, but we can also resource production internally. Decentralized work may also be a, a byproduct going forward of, of uh, the technological innovation that we're currently seeing. So to summarize, not only the, the innovation itself, but also the impact that it has on the way companies organize themselves and and, and how well, the economic system works that as a consequence of that, that is yeah, relevant. Absolutely. For, and I, I think yeah. those are the key points, aren't they? That, that not only does each of these cycles or waves have a whole new understanding of the main technology of, of the day, i.e. it brings a completely, it's not an upgrade, it's a new branch of understanding, it is truly a new paradigm. But when we bring this back to kind of finance and the economy, an awful lot of the economy isn't structured to the new paradigm. It's flowed towards the existing one because that is the structure of the economy and so so is the way that society is, people's skills. And I think we can probably tie this into a lot of the things coming out about the kind of the level of expected unemployment over the next 20 years, certainly. I saw a figure from, I think it was McKenzie and Company put something out saying, that 30% of tasks today could already be automated if that technology was implemented. Yeah, there were also other studies. I forgot the the author. I think it was a Swiss academic saying that up to 50%, 45% of all tasks would be impacted by a new technology. But that's being impacted is one thing. It's not the same as being making the, these jobs yeah. obsolete yeah that's one and then doesn't necessarily imply that unemployment rates would uh, would go up because they will first even if one task becomes obsolete you produce a new one then you have a transition period but even in uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that everyone who was employed in the old world is no longer uh, able to work in the in the new one you can you can retrain you you generate new jobs and then we also have a demographic development in place that is overlaying that. So I'm not that pessimistic or fatalistic reading these uh, these studies. Absolutely. And, and yeah, I, I would actually say that these are seeds of optimism, that while they can be periods of high tension, I'm going to call it, it doesn't mean, as you're kind of alluding to, that they're bad. In fact, I would say that this is how humanity really progresses. It's how prosperity comes about. When you look back at each of those cycles or waves, you absolutely do find that certain industries do disappear through technology. You know, you, we could take this all the way back to the Industrial Revolution, and we obviously had, in Britain here, we had the Luddites going around breaking all the textile machines. But what the point they missed was that there were new sectors, completely new jobs also springing up. You know, I think that's exactly what we'll find once again. It's happened at each of the other cycles. In fact, you look at some jobs even a few decades ago, and it's hard to believe that up until I think the 1950s, I'm sure a listener will 
message me if I get this date wrong. But in Britain, we even had people called knocker-uppers who, like, there weren't alarm clocks, so you had people tapping on windows to wake people up. Um, <laughs> and, and, and this that was a career. That was a job. And it's very hard where we sit today with endless devices and phones that can remind us not just one specific time to wake up or something, but we can set reminders for anything. How the society and the economy has transitioned. And I think that's, for me, the key is, I think the the greatest human ability is our ability to innovate and adapt. Let's take a step back because I want to bring this back to finance because obviously this is that's the world we work in because you get something interesting happen when these innovations appear. And what I mean by that is you tend to get these speculative bubbles. So we could take this back to the railways. We had the railway panic. I don't know the dates off the top of my head, but massive flows of money went in there. Uh, now yeah, I know there was you... one, uh, because I have it in front of me, <laughs> there was one uh, starting in the early mid 1820s and then uh, the first bubble burst in 1836 and then a new one in 1846-47, uh, which then collapsed. But then we could we could take this on from the railways and and I know in your data you, you have, I'm going to keep referring back to you because you've got it in front of you, <laughs> but... The same happened in, am I right to say, telephone stocks? Yes. That you have this massive surge in kind of price and then the bubble pops. Any other examples or areas? Yeah, that... automobile stocks uh, okay. in, the, in, in the 20s. There were several ups and downs, but notably uh, well, one in eight, 1920 roughly, and then another crash in absolute and relative terms um, in 2029, the radio stocks, later PC companies, and, and the internet, well, the tech bubble. Yeah, um, okay. Just, uh, those are the, yeah, the major ones. a pretty big one. Yeah. yeah. And, and who knows what, uh, we can also talk about the artificial intelligence companies these days, the green energy companies, even though I'm not sure that this is a bubble, but it's a, but that's, uh, history will tell. Yeah, will tell absolutely. Us. Yeah. I want to come back to the, like the the fang stocks. I think you've got data on this as well. Just and I think in your in the charts and things that you supplied me was you were showing that that sector was already starting to the relative outperformance was starting to pull back. That started last year, absolutely. So the index started to to underperform. Some of the companies actually started to fall in in absolute terms. The wider concept of these uh, high technology companies, yes, that's that's true. Yeah, without be, without naming a single one. So that's, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, and then if we brought this to kind of the the area of crypto assets or cryptocurrencies or whatever you label you want to put them under, I mean, um, my feeling is that certainly we've gone through that same cycle again. That that I'm a pretty firm believer in the blockchain technology. I'm just not sure the application of that has been found, the long-term application. But from where I'm sitting, it seems to follow that very same pattern, a very, very intense capital flow to create almost this speculative part that we've just talked about through railways, telephone stocks, autos, and, and so on. Yes, absolutely. Though some aspects here are even 
do not fit in the same box because the application of some of these aspects, uh, let's call notably Bitcoin, is is much more is not comparable to artificial intelligence products or the mobile phone or back then the the, the cars or the railways because they really had an, an, an importance in the relevance in the way we, we produce things and, and operate. While some of the crypto currencies are, well, they are a different beast there. But originally their roots go back actually to financial anarchists and they just wanted to have, and that goes back not just to 2008, but way back many, many decades to have, well, it's about financial anarchy, to be independent from the financial system. These are actually the intellectual roots of, of that. And as you say, the blockchain technology is something that really could, that has the potential to really have a major impact on many of the services, um, notably in the financial industry, uh, that the way we operate. But we should really separate this technology from the price for the coins that are attached to that. Yeah. And I, th I think from that point of view, that's where I kind of relate it back to the early dot-com era is that, yes, the internet was going to be a completely transformative system, but simply having a company with a domain name wasn't quite the right application. There's some more thought had to be put into that. So, yeah, I, again, you know, as, as you said, time will tell on, on some of these. But I want to bring this back to kind of inflation. I said I'd, I'd kind of end on this topic because I think this kind of wraps together everything that we've just been talking about actually leads on very nicely from those that short sentence you just said about kind of crypto and, and people wanting their money outside of the financial system. Certainly the inflation we're seeing right now, and I'm going to bring this back to monetary policy, fiscal policy, any other policy that you want to throw in there. Because we've been through several decades where we've had this kind of overriding deflationary forces at play. I'm going to start by asking you, do you think those continue in the near term or are there other things going on? Let's pull out reducing inequality, green financing that tip the balance. What's your take on what's going on here? On the inflation side, we have decided to stick our neck out already quite some time ago, not just in autumn of last year, November last year, following Jay Powell's famous statement, it's time to retire the notion of the word transitory. It was We had the impression that it started already way, way before that, one, 15 months ago, that we would end up with inflation not only going up, but being structurally higher. And let me a step back why we have been in in such a low inflationary environment from early mid 1980s onwards in this until the even after the financial well first up until the financial crisis in 2007 and, and nine why why were did we have this benign great moderation now first we, we certainly were benefiting from the from the Volcker policy who ended inflationary probably the the biggest central banker of all times and but then there were structural developments in place that certainly were helpful and that's uh, notably also the peace dividend dividend that we all were harvesting over the for many years for for, for, for a couple of decades the globalization in combination uh, the, the technological innovation 
internet creating price trans opening up price transparency that we didn't know before for global products innovation and and this uh, that also enabled us to produce cheaper and following the, the collapse of communism we had hundreds of millions if not billions that were now able to provide their labor to the on the global workbench and oil prices were also coming down for a long period. So uh, to some extent, central bankers were also simply lucky. Uh, they were conducting monetary policy in a time when all, all stars were aligned for, for lower inflation. And many of these factors have, have changed, I think, structurally. We talked about monetary policy, which I think has clearly changed, even compared to what we saw from 87 to 2008. We've gone into overdrive, as I would call it. That's one. So we have a lot of excess liquidity, whatever liquidity means then to the to inflation. I think monetary developments still ultimately have an impact on inflation. But demographics are going into reverse. So we had this one-off shock, positive supply shock of labor in 78, 79 with China. And then a good 10 years later with, uh, with, Eastern, with Eastern Europe. Now, this is, was a one-off shock, which we no longer have. And in addition, we have demographics in China going into reverse, the aging of this, uh, this economy. We also had a political mindset. Uh, as a consequence of that, I think we're also seeing higher wages. And plus, we're also seeing now, and that is part of this overall ESG wave, a political this, that's just one small aspect of it, but an important one. Uh, an economic policy that would, puts much more emphasis on just well, more equal compensation, reduce inequality. So we have higher minimum wage schemes, also voluntary minimum wage schemes set by companies. And then we have the another as another structural factor uh, that is all else equal, at least for a longer period of time for a longer transition period that is the greening of the economy not only because we have to pay more for our carbon em, uh, emissions but it also means that we are that some of the current production facilities or of our aggregate supply is, is, is it has to be phased out you have to write it off faster and then at the same time you have to build new greener uh, production uh, and this is a costly uh, Cost simply well, it is a transition period that will add to price pressure. By the way, that's again not fiction. This is what the central banks themselves are saying when you look at their working papers, the working papers produced by the network for the greening of the financial system, which is basically the network of all major central banks. All as equal, this transition is inflationary. So there are a couple of structural factors in place, which I think will lead to higher goods price inflation going forwards, leaving us aside, of course, cyclical swings and, and one-offs. Yeah, absolutely. I know I, I agree with everything you've just said there. I think the other thing I'd, I'd throw in uh, on terms of why potentially I I kind of was in the, the more persistent structural inflationary camp early on was when you look through history, there are very few periods where you have both monetary policy being accommodative and fiscal policy also being accommodated. Normally, one of those is pulling back while the other is pushing forward. And I think they, they normally balance each other out, hence why, yes, in addition to all those deflationary things you've just talked about, central bankers have got away with 
running this kind of this toolbox which is just seeking inflation but now we have both barrels of, of that shotgun firing together first time since the 70s yes and just to to, to provide um to a metric to that if you look at the share of treasuries held by the fed today it's higher it's more than 20 percent or roughly 20 percent higher slightly higher than in the 1970s so final question to you and this is about what central banks can do because we've talked about the inflation we talked about some of these structurally inflationary pressures coming down the line but we've also talked about the level of debt do central bankers in your opinion actually have the tools to fight this or is their toolbox limited to really only working when there's a deflationary backdrop that's a very very difficult question to come up with a good answer. The, the way I, I very often phrase it is that the that central banks have really put themselves in a very difficult situation and they are doomed if they normalize and doomed if they don't. But I think at this moment and to and could take a very long term perspective, but near term I think it's still it's a right decision to address the inflationary force. Because there is, um, they shouldn't look at the trade-off between uh, growth and, and, and inflation. Inflation in itself is down the road reducing growth, um, the growth outlook. So they should definitely um, address inflation at this this moment and and gradually scale back the ultra huge stimulus that they have in place since uh, over the, uh, since the last two years. Is there are there other tools to deal with it? I think um, well, it's. <laughs> Returning to a policy that is is more symmetric structurally is something that I would advise them to do, which is very difficult. Uh, I know in an economy that is that is highly leveraged, macroprudential measures are are an instrument that they have to use very heavily, but they can't rely on them exclusively. They are untested. We don't know if they were and, and how how they, they work when you have on the one side macro um, policies in place and on the other side easy monetary policy. One is, is uh, they are balancing each, each other out pressure. So you have to have the smart group put uh, tools to, to, to deal with some of the overshooting in, in the leverage. But at the same time, you have to support it by, by normalizing policy with, with conventional tools. And from a more, uh, well, f I wouldn't say philosophical perspective, but from a conceptual perspective, considering Asset price dynamics, asset price valuation in their thinking is, I think, a key to get out of it in the long run. And there are many ways how you can do it from a practical perspective. First, adjusting the measurement of the consumer price index in the first place. We're just in the process of doing that in the Eurozone. But also looking at really considering much more what's happening in, in asset price dynamics and related to that also in, in credit growth. And, and and also considering the, and notably then combining the two, looking at the financial cycle as a, as a major factor also to keep in at the back of their minds when then conducting monetary policy. Now, that's the best of all words, and we have to get there first, but that's the, the, the one the answer that I could only come up with. But it's not an easy task at this juncture because we have a lot of debt and tightening policy will face major political headwinds uh, because it will hit, uh, would create loss in wealth and unemployment, create unemployment. 
Stefan, thank you so much for such a great conversation. It's been great to have you on the show. Great to get your knowledge and experience. And uh, I think we got through most of the points we set out to uh, to do. So uh, I'm going to count that as a, a big success, but it'd be great at some point further down the line to get you back on because I think there's a lot we haven't covered, which perhaps in 12 months time or so we, we should. But no, thank you very much for being a guest and thank you for your time. Thank you, Chris, for inviting me and for this very interesting uh, conversation and for, uh, well, for giving me the chance also to discuss with you, but also to, to listen to your views. And also thank you all dialed into this to the show thanks for your interest you've been listening to transitional matters make sure to like subscribe and sign up to the show's email newsletter by going to chrismarshall.uk and we'll see you next time for more from the world of mega trends and transitions All content is for informational purposes only and does not constitute an offer or recommendation to buy or sell any securities. Content should be treated as educational and general and should not be seen as a recommendation to use any particular investment strategy.